Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul Rickard. Hello, Peter Switzer. This is our last program for this calendar year. Yes. And what I'm glad you got that out. <laughs> you hesitated. I had, to think, I had to think about that for a sec. But he always talks about financial years, this poor guy. He doesn't even know Christmas exists because you know, it starts on July 1, ends June 30 for Paul Rickard. Right. Well, I was trying to think of the segue into superannuation because that's really what we're talking about today. Oh, no. People are turning off straight no, 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 away, we'll... Paul. <laughs> Don't be up super early. This is a super millennial show. Oh, okay. We're going to have it's a... all about millennials. We're going to have a go at millennials later. No, no. Right? I'm supporting... <laughs> See, we are going to... Look, ladies and gentlemen, don't turn off. We are going to do super. Mm-hmm. But... The, the group we need to protect more than anyone are the millennials because you know, they want, need to be in the best super fund for the longest period of time so they retire with lots of money. And these guys, they really like lots of money. But if they're in crappy super funds, they won't be. So we're going to rescue them today by giving a, shining the spotlight on what they need to know about super funds. Yeah, and I was going to give you a little bit of an anecdote because I get a number of people contact us some, you know, and ask yeah. us to look at things like their super. Yeah. And usually the story we get is they're paying thousands of dollars in fees. Yes. And uh, whenever I get those sort of calls and look at the balance and see the so-called thousands of dollars in fees, it's usually insurance, mm. which you don't have to have. And in many cases, I'd say to someone that you don't need the insurance, but mm. it's often uh, taken to be confused with the fee they're paying. But that all said, Peter, this, this lady who was acting on behalf of a friend of hers did send me in her super statement. Mm. And it did take me 25 minutes to try to reconcile. Now I thought <laughs> I thought I knew something about super, right? Yeah, yeah. But I tried to look at see. I looked at what she saw, which tried to explain the fees mm. she'd been charged, yeah. the deductions had been made, the contributions, what had happened to the balance it was over double the Dutch. year. Can you say double she, Dutch nowadays? She only had a reasonably small amount, about twenty thousand dollars in mm. her super account. But after 25 minutes, I could only just get it to add up, right? It was oh, so hard. That's terrible. And look, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to make the super industry, I won't say super sexy, but at least... Super accountable. Super, super accountable. Honest. Maybe interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe understandable because it yeah. is, as you say, it is a bit of a turnoff, right? Yeah. I mean, if, it, if someone's being in a fund that underperforms by 1% or 2% for 30, 40 years, Paul, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars that they miss out on. Yeah, and if you just try to imagine that, if you if you offered one of say our millennials helping us with this broadcast, yeah. and put a suitcase of a hundred thousand dollars in front of them, and mm. you got them to run for it, yeah. or said, "That's choice one," or choice yeah. two, we can make your super return two hundred thousand dollars better off over the next thirty years. Mm. Do you think they'd rush us? Yeah, I think they run for the, the case. <laughs> they run for the case, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Look, um, we're being a bit hard, but it. Uh, no, you super, are. I'm, not, I'm completely. You're just trying to be super. Uh, no, I, I, I think respect them. I think they're a fantastic group of young people. They can be a little bit challenging, but hey, baby boomers can be challenging. Gen- Generation X are less challenging because they've often got a, a house mortgage, mm-hmm. they've got a baby, and therefore we've got them by the short and curly. You know, we can really yeah. boss those yep. people around because they're really Millennials economically just challenged. haven't had that, uh, right. those opportunities, those challenges. But we'll say. get them one of these days. Yeah. All right, now, without any further ado, let's You run, should introduce the program because we, we have, or you have waffled here for a little while. Yeah, I think you have. Now, look, the, the show is like this. We've got Xavier O'Halloran. Now, he's from Super Consumer Australia, Super Consumers Australia, and they're a part of choice. Uh, and they've looked at, APRA's put out a new heat map to try and help people understand, you know, what funds are hopeless and what funds are good. And so we'll talk to him about that. But then I've got the founder of superratings.com.au, and this, this guy, Jeff Bresnahan, mm-hmm. he's been, you know, checking out super funds for a long time. He's got a few problems with the APRA, uh, APRA uh, heat map. On super, and he'll show us what he looks at when he looks for really good super funds. And more importantly, he says there's about 12 super funds that should be given the TU on a brass. Uh, well, 
Should be shown the door. Um, and then we so talk- did, So do we get him to name the 12 super funds? Unfortunately, he wouldn't do that. But still, that's for the next, the next show. And then Luke Gurgis, who's the CEO of Bragg Media, they've got access to Rolling Stones database, I think. We're going to find out when we interview him. But the bottom line is, this is a, a chance to get inside the heads of millennials. And I reckon a lot of businesses would love to know what the, the buyers of tomorrow and of today I'm thinking right now. I don't reckon there's a lot of action, Peter. <laughs> oh, well, our millennials could turn this whole program they could. off. And they, we, could, we could plummet in the millennial rating. No, uh, I don't. Uh, look, I, I, I apologise to all our millennial friends because, yeah. look, they are the, the investors of today and yeah. the investors of tomorrow, yeah. so they're our future audience. That's Peter. right, we, that's right. We need to well, be... Well, maybe not you. They've, they've turned you <laughs> off, but they'll just keep listening We need to, to be me. millennial friendly. Okay. So let's kick off now with Xavier O'Halloran from Super Consumers Australia. Well, recently, APRA put out what they called a heat map for pe- helping people to assess their super, to look at what's on offer and how they can, you know, all of us can use this kind of thing. We have Xavier O'Halloran, who's from Super Consumers Australia at Choice. Thanks for joining us, Xavier. Great, good to be with you. So why don't you explain to us, first of all, what you guys do, Super Consumers Australia. It sounds like a, a really gutsy, ballsy institution there to save Australian consumers. Yeah, that's definitely what we've been set up to do, We're to give a voice to consumer concerns in the big policy debates that are happening around superannuation. So things like fund underperformance, um, giving people a choice of funds, cleaning up all these duplicate accounts that are in the system and making sure that people, the insurance that they're getting defaulted mm-hmm. into as part of their superannuation as well is actually providing good quality and good value. So we're the voice to government that represents consumers. We're the voice back to industry to represent those views as well. And we also communicate directly with consumers themselves to help them make decisions around what a good superannuation fund is and what appropriate insurance is for them. Yeah, and what a name, Xavier. That's all about saving the world, isn't it, mate? With a name like that. <laughs> <laughs> Your mother and father got that one right, uh, Xavier. All right, so let's kick off with... What came out last week from APRA, they released what they called heat maps. Now, I've got to say, you, you got, normal people wouldn't have a clue what a, a heat map is. So this is one of your first jobs, uh, Xavier, is to explain what a heat map is. <laughs> and they haven't made it easy for me, I've got to say. It is a, a bit complicated, but essentially what they've tried to do is rank all the, well, not rank, but give a colour rating to all of the um, my super superannuation products. So these are the default ones that people end up in if they haven't made a choice, or they might choose to go into them um, also. And what they've tried to rank them on is things like their performance in terms of um, net returns over the last five years, the fees that they're charging, and also how sustainable they're going to be over the longer term. Right. And um, what they've, yeah, what they've how, done how there... How does translate to heat maps? Just explain, that gives a colour as to mm-hmm. sort of these people are in the top half or top, top quartile and these ones are the ones not so good. Is that what's the translation? Yeah, so they've put a colour rating on all of them, everywhere from a kind of whitish, a yellowy orange right through to a dark red. So the dark red ones are the ones that are really not performing very well and have not been doing well over the last five years. So the idea from the regulator is there'll be a lot more scrutiny and transparency on these funds because for the first time we've got a a metric that is common um, to everyone and that the the regulator is putting out there so that everyone in the industry – um, everyone that's working in policy, academia, and the media can kind of really focus in on who those four performers are. Now, unfortunately, this isn't a great tool for consumers to look at. It's basically an Excel spreadsheet with a whole bunch of numbers <laughs> and different colours on it. But the hope is longer term that we'll have something that is a bit more consumer-focused and um, can actually unpack some of this detailed data and make it very simple for people to understand. Now, comparing funds can be a little tricky, particularly on performance. So I assume we try to get funds sort of with the same basic asset structure. Is that right? How, how, just explain how that works because I think, again, people – you know, don't really understand that there are different investment choices in superannuation. So just explain how we compare performance. Yeah, and so this has been a common problem with super is that you can't always compare apples with apples. So what they've tried to do here is construct um, a benchmark which um, you can compare all of the funds to. So you've created a benchmark of um, 
how say a, a passively invested market that was invested in the same kind of assets um, would perform and we mirror the kind of asset allocation that those funds have. So let's say, for example, it was 70% in growth and 30% in defensive. Um, you would map that against what um, a market portfolio would look like and you compare those two benchmarks and see if it, say, outperformed the market or underperformed the market. And that's the, the real high-level basic way that they've gone around um, comparing superannuation funds so that you are able to then make some real apples with apples comparisons between all of them. Xavier, looking at what APRA's put out and comparing it to, because obviously you know the work that Super Ratings has done in the past and Champ West, and that's basically what people have been going to to, to try and make some comparisons. Does the APRA um, offering add anything to the story more than what we're already getting? Well, I guess they've come up with some pretty um, basic standards for how you might go about classifying different assets or um, and things like that, which we don't really have at the moment. Everyone has a kind of different way of going about it. Um, they have different ways of calculating fees as well, whether they're including admin or investment fees in different and interesting ways. This basically says sets a standard that uh, I think will become more commonly accepted as it's refined over time. I don't think it's perfect right now, but over time I think this will be more of the standard of comparison that we would look to um, for figuring out which the good performers and which the bad performers are in the market. Mm. Now, I, I would guess anyone in your position, and I know, for example, great footballers compare themselves against great footballers and great politicians compare themselves against great politicians – if they've ever existed, and but in your case, the, the benchmark for you know someone who's going to be a great crusader for consumers would have to be Professor Alan Fells, you know, who, who I used to call Doctor No in his in his day because he always would come up with something controversial, and he'd say no. One one of the big areas I reckon you should be fighting for is making all the super funds when they say they're balanced, they have exactly the same. They're all 70-30. Mm. Now, my colleague, Paul Ricard, is sort of rolling his eyes here. No, I, I understand that because yeah. there are different definitions of balance. Yeah, that's right. Points, but okay. I, but I, I think, in a sense, the government should mandate it that, that a balanced fund is 70-30 because there are some that call themselves balanced at 80-20 and they do very, very well on, the, on the, the ratings tables, but they're more risky and they will get, get a, a better performance in the good times because they're 80-20. So would you like... To, that the standardisation of the labels that are used on super funds be improved, Xavier? Yeah, I think definitely. The kind of um, the, the standards that are being used amongst the industry at the moment, I think, are a bit of a well-known joke in that um, everyone kind of interprets them in their own way so that they can say that they're a balanced option when really they're pretty highly leveraged into some risky things. Mm. And that makes it really difficult for consumers to understand because they, they're they just taking the information at face value and assuming everyone's using the same standard. But mm. that um, that's not the case at the moment. So I think by the regulator taking steps like this, it is starting to standardise a bit more um, what the expectations are around some of these risk ratings. And that's a really good thing. And I'd, I'd really encourage them to go further on some of these um, you do probably get to a point, though, where it becomes a little more difficult to set a really strict label on something. Um, things like, you know, privately held infrastructure can kind of go either way um, in some of the ratings. And so uh, there, there is some complication there, but I think it's something that's really vital that the regulator works through and make sure that we're all comparing in a common standard. And Xavier, so what about the reporting? I mean, I, I um, we get a lot of people ring us up about their super funds and of course we the first thing we always say is go to your super statement and the people sort of a lot of people forget they get a super statement but some t some of those super statements are really really hard to interpret i was looking at one the other day that took me 25 minutes to You're decipher kidding. i reckon i know a little bit about super yeah, i think you do <laughs> but uh i mean how do we get sort of more usable information in the hands of the consumers is, is, again is there more regulation needed here or is it about groups like yourselves working with the funds to actually try to translate what is something that is way too complex into something that at least the average person can get a better handle on? Yeah, so we do have some regulation that, that helps. So we th have things in the My Super space like product dashboards, which are meant to be a kind of one or two page summary of how an investment option is meant to operate. So it'll 
show you things like the fees and the returns over medium to long term, um, give you an idea of the risk. But I think those could be improved because consumer understanding of things like risk is pretty limited at the moment. Um, but the other big gap is um, these types of product dashboards meant to be applied to all superannuation investment options. So they're currently only on these My Super products. So there's thousands of other options out there that this kind of information is not easy to access at all. You might have to trawl through, you know, a 20, 30 page product disclosure statement to even come close to reproducing the same kind of information. And no one has time or probably the financial capability to unpack some of those things and really compare how the different superannuation funds are going. So there's a pretty big gap there. And that's something that's been sitting with the government for some time to create some regulations around um, to ensure that we actually have um, a, a product disclosure statement that's easy to understand for all consumers across all superannuation investment options. And what's sort of the number one issue on your dashboard at the moment in terms of what, you know, if you had to, to wave your wand and get super funds to a couple, two or three big changes in the industry and how it relates back to consumers, what are the two or top, the couple of top priorities for, for your association? Yeah, so the two big ones are fund underperformance and the other one is making sure people are in appropriate insurance products um, in their super. So on fund underperformance, things like this APRA heat map uh, actually going to go a pretty long way, I think, in improving the transparency around who those underperformers are in the market mm-hmm. and really putting pressure on them to say, hey, I, I don't think you're delivering for members. Mm-hmm. You probably need to be looking to either merge with another superannuation fund so that you can get better scale and find efficiencies and hopefully improve um, from mm-hmm. that or um, some other mechanism to get you out of the market because you're really not um, looking after people at the moment. The other part of fund performance is really making sure the default system um, works properly. That's where most people end mm-hmm. up um, getting their superannuation fund from. And at the moment, there's not really much of a quality filter to ensure people are ending up in good funds. It's really just what has been negotiated between uh, an employer and an employee group or a union um, as to which fund you'll end up in. And um, you know, fair work might tick off on some of those. Um, but there's really not a huge amount of scrutiny to make sure that people are in, ending up in the very best performing funds in the system. As you can see from this heat map, there's a bunch of people that continue to end up in um, funds that are, you know, bright, dark, sorry, dark red in terms of their performance. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll give you another one, Xavier, and I think it should be like a simple rule of thumb. And as you can see, I'm a bit of a, uh, a madman when it comes to regulation of this sort of thing. If, if people can't easily read the statement from your super fund, leave the super fund because they're probably covering up how crappy the fund is. Yeah, I think that's right. Like a, a fund that can't communicate really yeah. basic things like how they're going mm. to their members um, is a warning bell for sure. Fantastic. Now, if people want to contact you, what's the best way? Yeah, so uh, we can get in contact via our website, which is superconsumers.com.au. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, uh, Xavier. Thanks very much. And that was Xavier O'Halloran from Super Consumers Australia. And now it's time, Paul. Ah, that music. That can only mean only one thing. It's time for an I ad. Re- I reckon our millennials have gone with <laughs> <laughs> that music, Peter. Sorry. Yeah, you've killed our millennium following. And this ad is all about helping millennials get rich. Talk about the book. Join the Rich Club, Paul. Yes. What book is that, Peter? was the book I recently wrote to make millennials rich. You know, you, you could be rich or you could be poor, but rich is better. That's why I, I argue on the front page of the book. Now, this, of course, is our um, uh, Join the Rich Club. Yes. And it's available at a special Christmas price. Yes. $19.96. Where did that come from? 96 I, You can't pay for 96 cents. Right. So Can you, you round up. <laughs> round up to no, you should round down. No, you should round down. You should round down to 1995, right? right? But uh, five-cent pieces nowadays? Yes, there are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we got okay. that right. Okay. Now, so the bottom line We is... don't want change, though. We'd rather have a nice big credit card. Correct, we don't, correct. We don't actually don't want your five-cent pieces, do we? Oh, no. We'll accept if they want to send us five cents, Paul. You, you've, you've been very cantankerous before Christmas. Have you been watching or reading the book about Scrooge? Okay, 1996. That is... And where can people yeah, get it, You can get it at Switzer's store, one... Singular, switzerstore.com.au. And so, we can't guarantee you'll get there before Christmas because it's pretty close to it's, Christmas. It's pretty close to Christmas. Unfortunately, Australia Post ain't that good, but it makes it will make a great present for your 
you know, for kids yeah. or grandkids. Yeah. yeah, I reckon you got to look up millennials, right? Well, or, or whatever the thing yeah. that comes after millennials, Gen Xers right? Who have really lost yeah. it? Who need help? But also, if you buy it ASAP, it's going to be there when people make their New Year's mm. resolutions to get their money house in order. Join the Rich Club will help them do that. Now for an alternative view on superannuation and the best way of actually highlighting good and bad funds, we have the founder of superratings.com.au, Jeff Bresnahan. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Cheers. Uh, Jeff, um, last week, APRA put out a heat map on superannuation, and I got the distinct feeling that you weren't particularly over the moon about it. Tell us what you thought about the heat map. Yeah. That, that's a, that's an understatement. I wasn't uh, super writing as a company weren't over enamoured with uh, with what they did. And I think the key thing, ignoring temporarily the, the methodology that APRA used, but the key thing for for me was that they put it into the public domain. So ever since the Royal Commission, there's been a push for to identify poorly performing funds, which is absolutely the right thing that needs to be done. But APRA, in their wisdom, decided to do some analysis on parts of each super fund and then to highlight the poorly parts of the poorly performing parts of those funds and put it in the public domain. Now the risk there is that they haven't analysed the fund in its entirety. So they've analysed some of the investment performance, they've analysed some of the uh, uh, some of the admin fees. Um, but you know, you need to look at uh, additional things within super funds and, and governance is a specific one that I believe they should have looked at. Um, up front because when you look at what happened in the Royal Commission, it was all about breaches of governance or inappropriate governance processes. So, you know, there were conflicts of interest and that led to, you know, a whole heap of things getting disclosed through the Royal Commission. Um, But when APRA went and analysed these funds, they simply ignored any potential conflicts or any governance matters. And so what you've got in the uh, public domain now are what they call heat maps, so, you know, a red meaning uh, danger for high fees or, or low investment return. And there's a real risk that the public will make decisions based on very, very limited information. And that, that's the key gripe. I've got no problems with that for putting pressure on poor performance funds, but do it in private. Um, don't put information out into the public domain where it can get misinterpreted. Jeff, what about uh, performance? Because that can always be a bit tricky, making making sure that we compare apples with apples. But the question I want to ask you is about about time period, because we, you know, you, you for one, funds report data in terms of one year performance, three year performance, five year performance, ten year performance. Do you think there's a, a right sort of time frame, or do, or do you think we need to actually sort of take in the data from all those points? Uh Paul, again, it's part of the bigger picture in making the decision as to which fund's appropriate for you or whether to move from fund A to fund B. Um, APRA have done it on three- and five-year timeframes, which I think is inappropriate. Um, and again, they, they will claim that they've only done it on that basis because they're assessing the my super part of the fund, which has only been around for, for about four or five years. So, But um, just about every fund in Australia that has been around for 15, 20 years um, has their old balanced option was, or the default option was a proxy for the MySuper. Mm-hmm. So all they did was rename it. So they could have gone actually and, and, and used the 7, 10, even 15 year returns. Now, look, 15, you're probably getting a little bit too much because no one really wants to wait around 15 years to find out you're in a crappy fund. Um, but certainly 7, if, if you look at 7 and 10 year results, that will give you a really good picture of having gone through different cycles. So if you remember now that the GFC was just over 10 years ago now. So that mm-hmm. was 2008, uh, 2009. So, you know, we've had some incredible returns since then. But uh, by bringing in that 15-year return, you are going to assess a fund through all, all market cycles. Looking at three- and five-year returns, you're just looking at pretty much a bull market for those periods. So, again, that time frame is not really appropriate. So, um, and, and the other – sorry. Go on, go on. I was just going to say, the other, the other side of the coin is you know, there needs to be a, a larger focus on the risk that some of these funds are taking. Um, you know, balanced options, in inverted commas, um, creates uh, what Paul was alluding to before, comparing apples and oranges. And uh, there are 
some funds that are going right to the end of the risk spectrum in terms of trying to chase returns, and there'll be others that are setting themselves up for the, the possibility of another market correction, and they will be very defensive. So you've got different styles out there at the moment. All right, so this is exactly the question I was going to ask you, Jeff. In a perfect world, would you like it if it was mandated that you know if you called your fund balanced, that it is... You know, sixty forty or you know sixty five thirty five, rather than some that might be eighty twenty, while others are say sixty five thirty five, because it makes your comparison tables less um, instructive if you've got different ratios of defence versus growth. What do you say to that? Um, yeah, look, it's it's a valid point and one that we've tried to address for, for well over a decade. So. Just because a fund has got the word balance in their, in their option, investment option, doesn't mean that we will lump them together. In fact, we, we did analysis um, many, many years ago that showed the word balance in a portfolio could show anything from 40% was the lowest um, lowest growth, growth level of asset mm-hmm. right up to 80%. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. can't obviously put those in there. We actually try and limit it. We, we've got a, our balance survey limits the growth assets between 60 and 76%. Yep. And uh, that's intended because most of the funds sit in that range. Um, and they may not be called balance, may be called growth, but it's the default fund that sits in that particular range is what we report on. So we have got it as close as we think we can um, between options without getting ridiculous and, and putting them into, you know, like 3% bands because that's not going to work either. And, and, and the other thing is the funds move around their asset allocations quite regularly, mm. um, but they do have to disclose what their minimums and maximums are. And to take Peter's uh, point a little bit further, should there be some sort of, uh, or should APRA be looking perhaps to regulate sort of nomenclature like the word growth or balance, just define it? Uh, is that, do you think that's the next step? Uh, I do, but it all hinges on the old growth uh, versus defensive asset analysis. And that is where the problem lies within the industry and in that there's no regulation over what constitutes a defensive asset or a growth asset. So mm-hmm. different funds will interpret the same asset in different ways. So that's not that doesn't work for anybody. So take direct property, for example. Some funds, the old though, the old style, was that was deemed 100% uh, growth asset. Mm-hmm. Now, funds quite rightly argued that the part of that yield, for example, is, is defensive because they might have a 20-year lease to a government department. So that would be fair enough to, to claim some of that as a defensive, um, defensive asset. But this is where there is no regulation over what is growth or, or um, defensive. And for that reason, it's left to the funds to interpret it themselves. Again, um, some funds are really pushing the envelope on this and, and probably making inappropriate assessments. So you will end up with a fund that says it's 70, 30, uh, growth defensive, whereas in reality it could be 85-15. Okay, now Jeff, I've known you a long time and you're a mild-mannered kind of guy who doesn't get too you know, hot under the collar or anything like that, so this question is really appropriate. Imagine if the Treasurer appointed you as the new superannuation czar and your job is to go through and look at all the superannuation funds out there and every one that you think really is a threat to humanity, as we know it, you can cancel their ticket, right? This is your job to do it. Yeah. Would you be cancelling the ticket of a lot of super funds? Uh, I wouldn't say a lot. I'd probably... Gee, you're getting mellow in your old age, Jeff. <laughs> mellow. going to be a big star here, right? Yeah. Yeah. This... In the last 17 years since we've been doing this, a lot of poorly performing or questionable funds have disappeared quite rightly. So that it is on the right track. And the other side of that coin is that funds have actually realised they have a role to play and the boards have, have improved, the quality of the boards have improved and so has their governance. So the, the, the system is really, really good. And when you look at the track record of what it's delivered since 1992, it, it's astounding, right? However... There are still funds in there that shouldn't be there, and it takes about ten minutes to identify. Take us ten minutes to identify them, and I suspect it will take us for ten minutes to identify them. Well, everyone pretty much knows who they are. I would certainly cancel the ticket of, of maybe a dozen funds, but it wouldn't be too much more than that. So, you know, the, the bigger funds uh, are, are in merger discussions with a lot of other funds, and that that will accelerate over the years. Um, but at the moment, look. 
I think there's a lot of um, hangover from the Royal Commission that the system is broken. It is not broken. It's worked so well. Um, and uh, we've, we've come through a GFC and the, the returns that they've achieved in the last, well, since the GFC have been really, really good for Australians. Um, they are well above all of the fund's objectives, which you know, they do set objectives of, of CPI plus three or three and a half percent. That they're absolutely well above those, as you'd expect in a bull market. Um, and they and it's slowly working itself through in terms of um, things that do need to get fixed, and that that would be things like multiple accounts, um, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and, and other markets. You cannot have more than one super account. It's impossible mm-hmm. to have it. So you know, we've we've still got. Um, a lot of people with three, four, and particularly younger people with three, four, and five accounts who are getting hit with admin fees and, uh, importantly, insurance fees are coming out. And insurance is the one that drains the account quicker than the admin fee. Yeah, and so, Jeff, now that notwithstanding that the system is doing well, but you are the czar, you've, you've cancelled... Uh, Twelve. Twelve. Uh, what are the <laughs> no, next... Name them, Jeff. <laughs> name every one of them. <laughs> what else are you going to do as the czar? What, what are the other couple of things you'd really like to see the... Uh, the industry clean up just to get it to the next level of, um, of yeah, of... it's disclosure. A lot of it's disclosure, so you know, consistent fee disclosure. So again, um, I've said it many, many times over the years. You know, a, um, a a good lawyer and a good marketer will get around uh, a regulator every day of the week, and this is what's happening with fee disclosure. So different mm-hmm. funds disclose their fees in different ways. Some of them um, take into account the the tax deduction they get um, within the for, for admin fees and for insurance costs, yep. but don't actually pass it through to the member. And so what that does is inflate their return, their overall return. The money doesn't disappear, but it just goes onto the return instead of being allocated at member level, which it should be. Uh, so again, when you're comparing fees, you're comparing apples and oranges in a lot of cases, unless you realise that and make an adjustment for it. But, but no consumer would actually realise that that's, that's the case. Um, disclosure of risk within portfolios, that, that's a given. You know, we, we will get funds that, that push the envelope. Um, an interesting one that I've been pushing for many years is, is the compulsory disclosure of asset holdings. Mm-hmm. There is no requirement for funds to disclose, you know, what, what assets they hold. Yep. So you, you, have, you should be disclosing, you know, your top 10 as a minimum, um, you know, holdings. Um, and people can look at that. And they'll, the, the funds will claim that that's, you know, they... Uh, other funds will copy them, but it's, it's irrelevant because it's in the past. It's a, it's a disclosure at a point in time, and things can always change the day after. So definitely disclosure of asset holdings. Um, legacy products, there's a lot of those around, and a lot of people are courting them. And um, they're the ones that really are expensive. Um, you know, and, and to the credit of the retail funds, they've created a lot of new funds and a lot more competitive structures over the last particularly 10 years. Um, they struggled before that, but there's still the legacy issues that they need to address. And um, again, if Apple needs to make some new rules to let them get out of there quickly, they, they need to do it. And Jeff, um, Jeff could yep. could a standard or mandated um, statement um, on every super statement that goes out basically give the key information like, you know, what is the, the actual MER what is the return? All the sort of stuff that we know they play around with with their statements. Could that be mandated and make it so um, watertight that someone who looks at their fund would know how it's performed, what it's costing them, so they can make a, a genuine comparison? Um, yeah, and, and the, the challenge there is actually getting everyone to agree on how, what that would actually look like. And it's been Just tried, and tried and tried and tried. Yeah, just make them. You've got to, you're you've the actually, czar. <laughs> you're the czar. Cancel their ticket. That, yeah, they don't do it. The, the easiest analysis is actually what we call net benefit to member, and that is simply taking your gross returns, less all your tax, less all your fees, right? And, and looking at that number. But at the moment, a lot of the um, the regulations and the funds look at investment returns quite separately to fees. Mm. Um, whereas in reality, if someone is in an expensive fund, but that fund is outperforming by, you know, say, say it's a 1% fund and it's outperforming by 2% a year, then they're in the, heading in the right direction. Yeah. Whereas someone that's in a 1% fund that's underperforming by 2% a year, they're going to end up with a lot less. And this is the risk of p- pushing people into passive um, investment structures or low-cost investment structures. 
because quite often they are doomed to underperform year in, year out just because of the nature of some of those structures. Mm. All right, Jeff, thanks for your observations. I'm really disappointed that you're not as aggressive as I wanted you to be, so I have a very big headline, but I'll still work on 12 super funds have to go. All right, mate, thanks very much. All right, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Peter. See you, mate. Bye-bye. So that's Jeff Bresnahan from superratings.com.au, and if you want to check out the really good performing funds, that's a good website to actually do it. Now, Paul has a very special deal for our listeners. Well, it's that time of year, Peter, when we look ahead to 2020, and we've got all our experts in the Switzer Report lined up with their predictions for the market. So from you, from sort of the macro picture, I've looked at the sectors. Tony Featherson nominates uh, his three big big cap stocks for 2020. He did really well last year. He did really well last year with stocks like Afterpay. James Dunn has five sort of mid-ish cap stocks that he reckons can stand Contrarian, they look like A couple of contrarian names in there. I won't say any more at this stage. We've got, uh, got Charlie Aitken having a look at a, a couple of things. We've got some uh, guys from Magellan. We've got uh, been on the property market. We've gone for the smartest people Lomas. in the room. So uh, what do you have to do? Well, you just have to take a trial to the Switzerland Report. And, any, uh, and, our, and our subscribers and those who take a trial, which I think is a 30-day is a trial, you will get our special 2020 outlook, which will come out, I think, Either Boxing Day or just uh, Boxing Day we hits the streets. Yeah. Once you're bored with Christmas, we think we will elevate your excitement factor by reading a, a, this very special 2020. Switzer so Report. you go to, uh, to take a trial, you go to switzerreport, all one word, dot com, dot au. Sign up now and uh, you get the 30-day free trial, plus you'll get access yeah. to our, our 2020 outlook. Yeah. And if you prefer to be poor, don't. Apply. If you prefer to be richer, apply. Our final guest is the CEO of Bragg Media, Luke Gurgis, and we're going to get inside the heads of millennials, which I think a lot of people in business would love to do. So, Luke, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Peter. So, just tell us, Bragg Media, what does Bragg Media do? I guess you brag, and you've secured the rights from Rolling Stone to conduct a survey. So, Fill us in. Yeah, so there's two separate things. Um, we did conduct a survey uh, of 5,000 music fans. Brag Media is the – we are actually the biggest music publisher in Australia, so we um, do everything from music content, articles, reviews, news. Uh, we also do events. Uh, we're, we're a very traditional music publisher. Um, and, yes, uh, recently we did – we did um, enter a J- into a JV with Rolling Stone uh, globally. And so we now are the Australian branch of Rolling Stone, launching Rolling Stone Australia in February next year, which is very exciting. Yeah, so has Rolling Stone never had an Aussie-specific uh, um, publication? Well, it, it's had a few iterations over um, many years, but it hasn't been in market for a while, and it's certainly never been in the Australian market in the way that it's about to come back. So, yeah. um, previous iterations were sort of licensing agreements and things like that. This is this is um, a very much a, a joint venture where we're um, partnering hmm. with the global company to, to do it in a big way here. So, we're really excited about that. Yeah. Well, Luke, uh, I, I hate to take you back in time, but uh, I guess it must have been. Uh, late 80s or early 90s, uh, Rolling Stone had a famous cover of Paul Keating on the cover with uh, pretty hip, cool sunglasses. And that, that photograph was actually taken in the Triple M um, studio that Doug Mulray used to occupy and Keating had come in ahead of the election and uh, it was a, a very cool cover. And that was, in, in I guess, uh, when uh, there was some kind of licensing agreement. But it's good to see that you guys have actually um, taken over that and because uh, it's a great magazine. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's sort of the most um, iconic music brand over the last, you know, um, 50 years. But, mm. you know, they've had a massive influence in sport and politics as well. So the whole, uh, when the whole 08 global financial crisis happened, it was actually Rolling Stone that, um, changed the conversation and broke the story that um, this wasn't actually a financial story and a financial problem. It was actually a crime problem. So mm. um, Rolling Stone have a huge history in that sort of um, side of the world as well, which is very exciting for us. 
Yeah, fantastic. Now, Luke, tell us about the survey. I'm told that you, you basically have talked to Gen Z and, and millennials. And, and as someone who's in the business uh, publication space and, and broadcasting, the, the more we get to understand our future, our, our, our new market and the, the, the emerging market, the better it is for our business. So what are the big highlights that come out of the survey? Yeah, I guess the main the main takeaway is that um, the Gen Z and millennial audience, first of all, they're, they're becoming the most significant sort of population size in Australia. Um, they're making up 40% of the working Australian population at the moment. It's only going to get bigger. Mm. Um, so if you're a company, um, either investing in a company or you're running a business yourself, uh, not looking at that demographic is the most counter-future-proofing strategy you can possibly do. Um, mm. the, the idea as well is that so we look at this generation and we go, look, what makes them tick the most? And this is why we felt we were the best place to do this survey because what what these millennial and Gen Z demographics care about more than anything else is their number one interest is music. And that's never happened before with any other previous demographic. demographic. Previous demographics have, have had sport as their number one interest or film and TV as their number one interest. This is the first time ever music has been a number one interest. And that, that really sets the backdrop for everything that you need to know in when you're sort of talking and um, trying to connect with this very important commercial demographic. How important are they as spenders? Yeah, so uh, what's really interesting to know is that, yes, Gen Zers at the moment are sort of junior in a lot of companies. Um, they're sort of leaving university or still at university um, and they're, they're entering junior roles. But um, the, the data shows us that they are actually the best spenders of any generation that it preceded them. So mm. they're exceptional spenders. They care. Millennials are really value travel and experience and um, and, and they spend a lot more on that, that sort of stuff. But Gen Zers actually really care about careers and money and family. Um, so as they sort of progress over the next five years up through the companies and they're going to have a lot of cash, they're going to be spending it in, in more traditional ways. Um, so it's going to be significant. Um, and so I think that's something that should really pique the interest of every CMO in the country because um, that is that is going to be the most important demographic to talk to without question over the next decade. Mm. Are, are they heavily committed to buying online or do they go into bricks and mortar uh, businesses more than we expect? Yeah, I don't have the research on bricks and mortar, but what I do know is that um, of our survey, 18.2%, 18, uh, our, sorry, our, of our survey, the, the music millennial Gen Z audience, um, get an average of 18.2 parcels per year delivered to them from online shopping, mm. um, as an average. Obviously, there's some that index a lot higher than that. But, um, if you compare that against the Australian population, um, this, the average Australian gets 2.3 parcels. Mm. So again, this demographic, is massively spending online in a big way. Okay. Um, and how do they compare with the baby boomers when it comes to travel? Because we know baby boomers are, are, are committing themselves to uh, uh, jumping on boats and going around the world just about every, every, every week. But, but I figure the younger generations aren't getting on boats, but I, I figure they're big travellers. Yeah, well, what's interesting is a lot of um, – I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but mm. a lot of the people that we surveyed – Said that they've never been on a cruise but really want to, mm. and that was a that was um, actually they, I've got it here in front of me. Fifty four percent want to go on a cruise even though they hadn't been on one. Um, mm. But in terms of again traveling internationally and domestically, both both demographics out index the Australian population. Um, so they're traveling more domestically and they're traveling more internationally than the broader population, mm. um, which is. Again, really, really compelling, and especially with the millennial demographic. The millennials really focus on international travel in a big way. Luke, one interesting observation I've got here it says a common theme from the survey results is that younger people strongly uh, lack faith in traditional institutions. Um, what do, do you have an idea of what traditional institutions we're talking about? Yeah, I think um, I think the idea of authenticity is really key. With, with both the Gen Zers and Millennials. Mm. And so it's very easy to get blacklisted um, 
as a company with these demographics. So the best example and the most famous example of recent times, I think, is when you know the Chick Fil A founder in America donated to some sort of um, anti LGBTQI uh, sort of uh, institutions, yeah. and suddenly massive like uproar and people just completely boycotting Chick Fil A around all mm. across America. It was a big it was a big problem for them, um, and that is something that now. And that is something that's very consistent um, with with a lot of things. So, and authenticity and good purpose is really important for this demographic. But um, so is the way that you talk to them. So, if you look at the data on traditional marketing, so you think your you know banner ads online, or you know print ads, or video, or TV ads, or the pre rolls in front of your YouTube videos, these are all the things that really interrupt and disrupt art. So, somebody wants to do something, wants to engage with a piece of art, and then suddenly they're being absolutely disrupted and annoying the person that's watching them, which isn't a great way to build a relationship. And so mm. if you look at the data, 82% of people will skip an ad online if they have the option. And the most damning stat is that 62% of people will just abort the thing that they came to watch if they can't skip the ad. Um, so if that's not a process, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you have a lot of um, Australian CMOs still invest heavily in these um, in these ways of, marketing it's just not the way to build a relationship with somebody who is who really prioritizes authenticity mm. um, so content marketing is massive if you look at the us 20 percent of the budgets go towards content marketing um whereas here in australia i mean we we peak out and we're lucky to get to 13 percent. you know yeah. it's uh it's, it's just we're miles behind so i think the as always the us are ahead of us with this sort of stuff and and I think that's kind of good because it means we can learn from them and learn from what they're doing well and what, what they're making mistakes at. And I think over the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to see um, the smart companies really double down on that content marketing, build authentic relationships and not just try to get massive reach and disrupt what everybody wants to you know, consume. Uh, un- unconsensually. <laughs> mm. but so, so, Luke, uh, I was just thinking about the, the latest um, episode of Ray Donovan and Ray went, went up to a bar and he actually said a Johnny Walker. Now, and I actually, the first time I've ever heard him mention a brand in that program, with, is there a better way of promoting Johnny Walker than having an ad in the middle of Ray Donovan you know, for this generation? Yeah, that's, so that, that's sort of a grey area, right? So mm. it's like, okay, um, Ray Donovan, that's, that's sort of always kind of happened, product placement and movies. That's mm. actually not a new thing. No. Um, I guess who, where, the best way to do it is to create a piece of content that people want to watch, mm. you know, regardless, right? So have you seen the show Suits? Yes. Yeah. So look, that should be, those, that show is really compelling and engaging and, they're always walking around with coffees and whatever. Mm. Look, someone like Red Bull should have, like a company like Red Bull should have made that show. Yeah. And then everybody knows that Red Bull produced that show. So there's already that positive sentiment and everyone's craving the next Red Bull produced film. And instead of people walking around with coffees, they're walking around with Red Bulls, mm. you know. But, but the things that we do, for example, with a brand here, um, <clears throat> you know, we'll get a brief from a, um, from a, a speaker company that says, hey, we want to show everybody this, this speaker is waterproof. So instead of, you know, creating an ad that's going to run in front of YouTube videos or on TV or whatever that, you know, there's a bunch of good-looking girls dancing at a pool party throwing a speaker around. What we'll do is we'll say, hey, let's actually get some dogs on a beach. Let's let's play fetch with the speaker and the dogs. There's a funny commentary over there. And let's really have create some content which is fucking hilarious. And there happens to be a waterproof speaker in the video yeah. that people connect the dots on. Yeah. And, you know, we put that video out there, it goes fucking viral. And mm. this is a real example. Yeah. And then that that's, we're creating content that people want to watch, not disrupting content that people want to watch. And mm. so that's how you build positive sentiment. Well, Luke, you take me back to an ad that was probably made, I reckon, maybe 15 years ago. And it was a BMW ad. And that actor, Clive Owen, was um, uh, the Englishman. He was sitting in, the, uh, I guess he would be a Welshman with a name like Owen. He was sitting in the driver's seat and Madonna came out after a concert and she was just a real pain in the ass, And she just treated the chauffeur like he was a dumb chauffeur. And so he takes off before she gets the seatbelt on and he just drives like a madman and she's just rolling around in the back all the way and you're laughing your head off all the time and at the end of it, just a little BMW sticker came up. It was a great ad. The fact that I can still remember it. 
And it was yeah. it was highly entertaining. Uh, and uh, I think that's what you're basically saying. If you can entertain the audience and just say, well, that entertainment was brought to you by BMW, well, y- you get a nice dividend. Totally, mm. totally, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's – see, there's, there's also creating – you know, okay, so if we're going to do a traditional ad and we're going to interrupt people's art, is there a way that we can get people to enjoy that? Mm. That's not the business we're in, but it's something that I hugely endorse. Like, I don't know how many millions of dollars are spent on these commercials and they're just fucking, you just, you, it's like you're forced to watch them and you hate watching them. Like, I don't, you know, it's your job to, it's your job to build a positive sentiment to your brand. So mm. not doing that is a complete disservice. I, I, I agree with that. Okay. Well, Luke, thanks for joining us on the program. I've got to say, uh, of all the guests we've had all this year, you're the first one who confidently dropped an F word and I'm really happy you did. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining uh, us. I've, I've, Thanks, mate. it. And that was Luke Gurgis, the CEO of Bragg Media. Pretty interesting stuff, Paul. Good stuff. And uh, look, I think there's always opportunities for how we as business people can do more mm. with millennials. They're going to be our, if they're not their customers today, they're going to be our customers in the future. But I've got to finish on this note, Peter, because this is our last show for yeah, 2020. Yeah, and I'm surprised it's you didn't ask one question. I've never, I've never heard you <laughs> shut up in an interview for so long. I was really happy because I was doing a really good job without you. But, you did. But, yeah. And I've got our last show for 2020. It's our last show for 2019. So I'm ahead of myself, but yeah. I'm thinking about 2020. Yeah, you're always thinking ahead so, of yourself. Uh, so Christmas coming up, what's your Christmas market tip? Or your oh. tip for 2020. They're putting you on the spot. Question without notice. You, you, this, is the, this is the great piece, Switzer, yeah. to sign out our final podcast. Yeah. I think, apart from, you know, it would be very wise to buy the book, Join the Rich Club. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're not, fish, you're not fishing for that. I wasn't quite fishing <laughs> yeah. for that tip. Yeah, look, good I, look, I think the bottom line is this. If you really want to make some easy money uh, next year, I would buy... Uh, an ETF for the ASX 200 index. I think it will go up about 10% plus dividends. So you can make 14% uh, buying the best 200 companies in Australia. That's a pretty easy way for for non-experienced investors, I think. Otherwise, I would throw in... Get the Switzer report and see some of the great tips from some of our really smart people. Paul, what that, would you what would you recommend? I'm going to recommend uh, two things. One is I think you should stay long in this market. That means if you've got in the share market, hang on because we're in a bull market, folks. It's uh, we're getting a little euphoric. And that's but, no bull. We're in the bull market. And, and but uh, you know, 2020 could be a bit challenging towards the back half with mm. the U.S. election and all funny things with President Trump. But the market wants to go higher. So yeah. uh, if you're long, just sit back and enjoy the ride. Don't worry about all the the, the, the doomsday moves out there yet and secondly I think on the surprise side for next year I'm going to think the banks are going to do a bit better so that's uh, that, that, that's, that. a, that's a contra play but uh, mm. you can't be bashed up and what forever. bank do you like the best I Paul? actually like the one that's most bashed up and that's Westpac at the moment now mm. that again is a bit contra but yeah. uh, I'm going to stick my neck out on that one and say I think there's value there okay mate well that's the show we're back on the 22nd of January we look forward to uh, catching up with you then thanks for joining us this year and have a great Christmas and Happy New Year Thank you.